Welcome to Outdoor by Four Magazine's audio edition of issue 41. Outdoor by Four's focus is on visual and audio storytelling with the mode of travel primarily in a 4x4 vehicle, adventure motorcycle, in the saddle of a mountain bike, or by foot. We inspire adventurists to get out and explore the world around them and highlight those who live for adventure. In this issue, you'll hear stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's Editor-in-Chief, and Adventure Through Time, a story about exploring the White Rim Trail in Canyonlands National Park, In the Shadows of Grandness, a story about exploring Wyoming, and Our Overland Garage, featuring a thorough analysis of lithium batteries. There are also additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy of the magazine at newsstands from select partners including Four Wheel Campers, OK4WD, and Talus Expedition Gear. Additionally, you can subscribe to Outdoor by Four and receive each issue by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. The Dispatch by Frank Ledwell, Editor-in-Chief of Outdoor by Four Magazine. Exploring the great wide open is what makes vehicle-based, overland, and outdoors adventure such a unique way to connect with our surroundings. However, with those experiences comes responsibilities for the lands we visit and ensuring we leave them the way they are found. As you're planning your next backcountry adventure, consider these four easy ways to minimally impact the places you visit and becoming a hero for protecting public lands. Number one. Camp in established indoor designated areas. Camping in areas not designated for this use can have a lasting impact on the environment and sustainability of the land, and even wildlife. Additionally, camping too close to water can become a safety concern with local wildlife who gravitate to water sources at any time of day or night. Look for areas designated specifically for camping whether in public lands or state national parks, and stay the trail. Additionally, always pack out what you pack in. Number two, stay the trail. Trails are created for a reason, primarily to provide a safe or safer path to your destination, but also to prevent erosion of natural areas. Deserts, specifically, may seem wide open and barren. However, there is a variety of delicate plant life that's fragile and vulnerable. Driving or walking over these various ecosystems can compromise the landscape by making areas susceptible to erosion and even killing plant life. So do your part and stay the trail whether hiking, backpacking, on two wheels, or on four. Number three, pack out what you pack in. Most soils lack the microorganisms to biodegrade human or pet waste, meaning if you or your pet drops trowel and it's not properly discarded, it could be there for years, which creates a biohazard and unpleasant experience for others who visit those areas. The same can be said of garbage and any other waste that's not natural in the areas we visit. If traveling by vehicle, use a trash or equivalent to pack out your garbage while keeping it away from items inside your vehicle. If traveling by foot or bicycle, carry disposable bags with you to scoop up and place waste, whether human waste or general garbage. And last, number four, look at artifacts, including rock art or other remnants of the past, but don't touch them. The oils on our fingers and the rubber on our shoes and or vehicle can ruin these remnants of human history. 
And the Archaeological Resources Protection Act makes it a federal crime to destroy or steal artifacts, even if it's unintentional. Many of these formations were home to earlier civilizations, which connected spiritually with the land and relied upon the canyon walls, boulder clusters, and limited plant life for food, shelter, and celebration. It's a history worth preserving and should be enjoyed and experienced with your eyes only. While these suggestions are limited in detail, they are critical to consider when traveling overland, whether by vehicle or on foot. By following these simple suggestions, you'll not only be a hero and a good steward to the places we visit, but these actions can ensure that future generations are afforded the same experiences. Isn't that what we all want? An Adventure Through Time, Exploring the White Rim Trail in Canyonlands National Park by Emily Thompson. I love a good adventure. If you're reading this, chances are you do too. Just saying the word adventure makes my heart rate increase, my palms sweat, and conjures up memories of past suffer fests, river trips, death marches, solo hikes, and travels in foreign lands. Adventures test our strength, confidence, skills, and patience. Whether it goes as planned, is better than expected, is closer to a near-death experience, or somewhere in between, the need to explore someplace new is as essential to my existence as water and food. I walk away every time with new perspective, new knowledge, self-confidence, and feel more alive, grounded, and connected to the earth and sky. Moab, Utah, is a hub of the West for adventure seekers and outdoor enthusiasts, and arguably has been that way since humans first appeared in the area. The ancestral Puebloan Indians occupied the vicinity as early as 10,000 years ago and farmed its lush valley until they left sometime in the 13th century. It is thought that the name Moab stems from the Ute Indian tribe who called the place Mahapa, meaning mosquito water. Mormon pioneers, some of the earliest Anglo adventurers in the West, first settled the Spanish Valley of Moab in 1877. Moab attracted trappers, mining prospectors, and ranchers, and became known as one of the toughest towns in the West due to the deep canyons, rugged terrain, wild rivers, and mountains that surround it. It even drew outlaws like Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch, who used it as a place to hide. Rich in oil, natural gas, and minerals, the region became known for energy exploration and production. The discovery of uranium in the 1950s is what really put Moab on the map. Eventually, Hollywood discovered Moab, too, and it's been a hot spot for the film and television industry since the 50s. Surrounded by national parks, monuments, and forests, the public lands around Moab are what created the current tourism and recreation explosion. And the economy thrives on the three-plus million visitors a year who travel from all over the world to play here. At the age of 41, I needed a new life adventure. I sold my house in Flagstaff, Arizona, a place I had called home for 18 years, got permission to work remotely, 
And in December of 2019, I moved to Moab, Utah, along with my 13-year-old dog, Frida. I found an affordable place to live for the winter and was grateful to find myself with no social ties, no pressing work schedule, and a new business idea to pour my energy and time into. I chose Moab for multiple reasons. Living and working on the Colorado Plateau, I'd had visions of living here for many years. Anytime I drove through this landscape, I felt pulled towards it. I longed to roam around the desert, wander through its endless canyons, float down new stretches of a river that flowed through my soul and explore a mountain range that jutted right out of the sandstone fins and provided a retreat from the deadly heat of summer. I spent my first winter in Moab working on launching Southwest Jeep Adventures, a camper Jeep rental company. This business was the only adventure I sought. I built a website, got a business license, started an Instagram account, designed a logo, started writing a business plan, and began to realize that I just might be actually creating something that could work. The bookings rolled in, and I was excited about the spring and the potential of this business. Then the unforeseeable and unexpected happened that changed all of our lives. A virus was making its way around the world. I can recall the certain uncertainty in my own world. I was living in a new town where I didn't have my community of friends and family. My work was shut down completely and I would have no income for the foreseeable future. I was starting a business in tourism and no one was going anywhere anytime soon. 2020 brought a long list of challenges, disappointments, sleepless nights, loss and loneliness that spared no one. I binge watched Tiger King with the rest of the world, taught my mom how to join a Zoom meeting, house partied with friends near and far, explored my new backyard every day, and daydreamed about what my next adventure would be once life got back to some sense of normal and I could gather with my friends and family again. By the summer of 2020, the floodgates in Moab had reopened and record numbers of visitors flocked to the national parks and public lands that surround the old mining town. As it turned out, camping was exactly what people wanted to do and my camper Jeep rental business was taking off. I'd heard about the White Rim Road for years and had always wanted to make the 100 plus mile journey across the backcountry of Canyonlands National Park. So I did the research and talked to new friends who had either driven, motorbiked, or mountain biked the route and decided a bike trip was in order. And I wanted to do it with my girlfriends, whom I miss dearly at this point. A vaccine was on the horizon, life was feeling much more normal and hopeful, and a new adventure was exactly what I needed. So I secured the permits and put the word out to see if anyone wanted to join. The adventures of my 20s working in the Grand Canyon led me to meet a group of girlfriends who I'm so close with today, and they were the perfect group to bring together for this trip. Courtney, now a mom of two, had been homeschooling, working full-time and losing her shit for the last year, and immediately burst into tears with gratitude and excitement to go. Y'all, who essentially taught me mountain bike 
and was dying to escape her university job for an adventure, was on board too. Paige, who now lives in Missoula, Montana, and has her own successful catering business and community kitchen, jumped at the opportunity. Throttle, a nurse and ball of energy as her nickname suggests, was in too. We all needed a getaway, time with our girlfriends, something to look forward to, and a reason to cut down on the daily wine intake and get on our bikes again. Nowhere in the Moab area can one get a more rugged and remote experience of the human, natural, and geologic history of the region than the White Rim Trail. The route is carved into the White Rim sandstone layer from the Permian period 299 million to 251 million years old. The evidence of the ancestral Puebloans is witnessed in rock art and ruins in various places along the route. Before it was designated as Canyonlands National Park in 1964 by Lyndon B. Johnson, the lands of the White Rim area were used by cattle ranchers for grazing in the winter and many of the names of its canyons and trails are named after cattlemen of those days. But the White Rim Trail was actually built in the 1950s by the Atomic Energy Commission for prospectors who could mine uranium and be used for nuclear weapons in the Cold War. Blasting that road must have been quite an adventure itself. The first step in planning a White Rim adventure is deciding how many days to do it. While some take on the challenge of completing the 100-mile loop on a bike in one day, my days of choosing Type 2 fun adventures are becoming fewer and farther between. We chose a three-night, four-day itinerary, which meant biking between 15 to 35 miles each day, depending on where our campsite was for the night. Next, you pick your campsites. The preferred direction to ride is clockwise and start from the main entrance to the Canyonlands National Park. The best campsite out there is White Crack, so if that's available, snag it. Gooseberry A, Candlestick, and Labyrinth B are other favorites, but honestly, you can't really go wrong with any of them. Then you must decide whether to carry all your own gear and food, water, also known as bike packing. We decided on having a support vehicle for this adventure. I personally wanted to see how my camper Jeep would do out on the white rim so I could potentially allow clients to take it out there. So it was a perfect opportunity. Old Blue would be our sag wagon. Since we all wanted to ride the entire loop, we needed a driver. So Andrew, a friend and photographer, jumped at the opportunity to drive the scenic loop and capture our adventure on camera. The Journey, Day 1, Schaefer Trail to Gooseberry A, 31 miles. We drove out to our decided upon endpoint, parked a vehicle, and started our first day's ride beginning at the entrance to Canyonlands National Park and down the infamous Schaefer Trail. While most of the loop is not necessarily challenging or technical riding, it's the miles and time on the bike seat that presents the greatest challenge. And in April on the Colorado Plateau, the wind. Spring weather in the Southwest can be beautiful or rainy, warm or cold, and in our case, all of those things all at once. 
sun, rain, wind, hail, you name it, we got it. The first day was our hardest and longest, riding 31 miles in 40 miles per hour sustained headwinds to our first camp at Gooseberry. The excitement of the first day of our adventure was what propelled us forward. Any moisture in my body was now blown out of me and along with my favorite hat was probably back in Moab by now. And there was sand in every possible place it could be. We celebrated our arrival at camp, enjoyed some adult beverages, ate dinner prepared by Paige, and shared the day's stories out on the edge of the canyon. With the LaSalle Mountains as our backdrop, the views out into the canyon country on the White Rim are truly breathtaking. The beauty, the laughter amongst old friends, and the beer buzz quickly took any of the day's aches away. Day 2. Gooseberry to Candlestick, 26 miles. While our second day was shorter in mileage, it brought another day of 40 miles per hour headwinds and more sandblasting. We decided to call it the Moab Expo, Moab Exfoliation, or MOFO for short. People pay big bucks for spa treatments that yield far inferior results. The best part of the day was getting a midday epic eight mile downhill ride that makes the long, slow uphill slogs totally worth it. And the expansive views make you feel like you're riding through a painting. So much fun. This stretch also boasts the first and only real difficult part of the white rim for vehicles. And my one source of concern, Murphy's Hogback Hill. But Old Blue and driver Andrew did great on the 45 degree steep and scrambly uphill drive. The trick here is to make sure no one is coming down from up above put it in four-wheel drive low, and don't stop till you get to the top. The bike rack on the rear hitch even made it through unscathed. This was definitely a get off the bike and walk section for our group. Come down the other side, there are a few tricky ledgy spots, but again, low and slow gets you safely down. Grateful to be at camp, we used the Jeep as a windbreak to make a burrito dinner which still managed to have a nice layer of sand anyway. We enjoyed another sunset happy hour out on the rim and watched the clouds start to roll in. Paige and Courtney had decided not to set up their tents when we got to camp because of the wind and were so exhausted at bedtime, they chose to sleep out under the stars and take their chances with the rain. Around 1 a.m., nestled high and dry up in the rooftop camper of the Jeep, I heard the raindrop start. An hour later, I woke up and it was still raining, harder now. And right as I was about to go check on the girls, the Jeep doors flew open and two very wet women begged to come inside with their drenched sleeping bags and pillows. It rained all night and didn't stop until around noon the next day. This storm definitely put my Ursa Minor camper to the test. I can't say enough about its durability in the elements. We were warm and dry and grateful for it. Day three, candlestick to labyrinth B. Wait, no, potato bottom, 11 miles. 
we decided since we had a short day that we would sleep in and wait for the rain to subside, which it did briefly, just enough time for us to make breakfast, break camp, load the Jeep, and get on the trail. As we pedaled down the road, the rain started up again, and today it was damp and cold. My mind started wandering to our next obstacle ahead, Hard Scramble Hill. Our camp for the night was Labyrinth B, on the other side of a hill that is infamous for becoming impassable during wet weather. The shale layer of rock on Hard Scramble can turn to slick, sloppy mud, and without chains, and even with them, you don't stand a chance making it over. The rain soon turned to hail, and as we approached Potato Bottom and the road turned to thick, deep mud, we knew we weren't going any further that day. Potato Bottom has three designated campsites, so we made our way to the largest unoccupied site and planned to wait out the storm. Cold and wet, we set up camp, made some soup, and hunkered down. If it didn't stop raining soon, we might be a couple of days before the road dried out enough to pass. Luckily, the rain stopped around 4 p.m., and after talking with fellow campers and guides at the other sites, we felt confident we'd be able to get out by midday the following day, assuming the sun came out and worked its magic. Day 4, Potato Bottom to the End, 31 Miles The sun did come out and the road dried up enough for a noon departure. Our last day was no doubt the best, with bluebirds, sunny skies, no wind or rain or hail, and a successful end to a magical experience. Other than Courtney falling off her bike into a pool of mud, our spirits were high and dry, and the stoke was real to have completed this four-day journey with old friends. Sometimes the best part of any adventure is the friendships that are forged and strengthened through a shared experience of hardship, excitement, and natural beauty. In the Shadows of Grandness Words and Photos by Michael Holland I find myself studying a paper map, trying to decipher our present location. Well, I know we're in the northwest corner of Wyoming, trying to find a trailhead to a mountain height. I'm confused, but pause to get my bearings. I drive a little farther and spot the trailhead. See, I wasn't lost. Well, maybe a little bit, according to my family. The northwest corner of Wyoming is known for Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks. And rightly so. Both parks offer vast beauty and endless adventures. Both are worthy of exploration, whether in a vehicle or on foot. It's tempting to remain in the two parks and not wander and explore the treasures just in the shadows of the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone. But if you succumb to that temptation, you will miss out. We followed the Grays River north along the Wyoming Range in search of trout. The dirt road paralleled the river as it flowed north before emptying into the mighty Snake River. Louise tied a royal wolf fly to the end of her line and cast into the clear mountain waters, while Lily and I prepared our rods. The Grays River is just one of many streams in the area to fish. Louise, a former fly fishing guide, 
cast the fly across the river and watched it land in a small eddy. The fly sat on the water and floated naturally for a second or two before it was swallowed from underneath. Louise set the hook, and the fight ensued as the cutthroat trout dove underneath the water, struggling for his freedom. A few minutes later, the fish was exhausted and Louise landed it, snapped a few photos, and released it back into the water. All of us spent the afternoon catching and releasing fish. Nothing huge, but fun nonetheless. Just over 500,000 people live in Wyoming, and, with public lands comprising close to half the state, there are few people exploring those public lands. Mountains, rivers, and miles of forest roads can be explored without much competition. Summer months, however, offer prime time for visitors. The majority head to the Jackson area, the gateway to Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks. We, on the other hand, pointed the Land Cruiser 200 series east and traveled up and over McDougal Pass. The road was smooth gravel, so progress was steady. We turned north on the Green River Lakes Road just outside of Pinedale, Wyoming. The paved road twisted and turned through low sagebrush hills, and I spotted the Wind River Mountains in the distance. True Wyoming was before us. As we continued north, the road turned to gravel and became rougher. The mighty Grin River paralleled the west side of the road. I imagined the Green River cutting through the Red Rock Desert of Utah a few hundred miles to the south. On this day, however, the green meandered through the natural grasses and sagebrush prairies of Wyoming's shadows. We found a lovely place to camp along its banks and savored the bug-free evening, a benefit of the previous two nights of cold temperatures. Yep, two nights of freezing temperatures in early August make for chilly sleeping conditions, but we were rewarded with no biting insects. The following morning, we inflated our paddle boards and aimed for the headwaters of the Green River, the Green River Lakes. Square Top Mountain towered over the massive lake. Natural beauty surrounded us, towering pine trees, wildflowers, and massive granite mountains. Lily paddled across the smooth, glassy waters, she stopped to place her feet in the waters, but quickly retracted her legs. Even though it was August, the waters from the mountains run cold. It was a weekday, so the lake remained calm. We paddled and soaked up the alpine environment. Our stomachs growling, we returned to camp, prepared dinner, and savored magic hour along the banks of the green. The following morning, we packed and retraced our route until the turn for Union Pass. The dirt road stayed at a low elevation. We traveled through sagebrush and various wildflowers. Eventually, we began to ascend. Sagebrush gave way to pine and aspen trees. The forest enveloped both us and the road. Miles later, the forest relented and the views returned. The Wind River Mountains rose magnificently to our east. We approached Wagon Creek and spotted what seemed to be excellent fly fishing water. Pull over, let's fly fish, Lily demanded. Eh, why not? Let's throw a few flies to see if anything is biting, I replied. We stopped, prepared the fly rods, and wandered upstream looking for water that could hold fish. Louise cast upstream to a small eddy. She let the fly float naturally through the eddy. As soon as it exited, a fish rose from the bottom and gulped it up. Louise landed and released it. We fished our way back to our vehicles and continued onward. Later, we topped out on Union Pass and marveled at the 360-degree views. In the west, Tetons showed themselves on the western skyline, 
We descended the smooth dirt track toward the city of Dubois, Wyoming. Eventually, we intersected Highway 26, which led into Dubois. There, we refueled and resupplied. Dubois is a small ranching town that caters to tourists traveling in the summer months. Western charm abounds there. The sun was setting, creating a magical golden glow over the entire landscape. We headed west and found a place to camp for the night. We selected an outstanding campsite with towering cottonwoods and green grasses. The Bridger Teton National Forest offers plenty of room to roam or camp. The stars twinkled above us and the fire warmed the chilly mountain air. I spotted a few distant planes landing at Jackson, Wyoming Airport. It's the only airport that lies inside the boundaries of a national park. Calm winds and cool temperatures allowed us to sleep well. The next morning we awoke to lovely blue skies. We sipped coffee leisurely, not wanting to pack or leave. Fortunately for us, the Wyoming wilderness called. We packed our gear and land cruiser as the air temperature rose. The dog days of summer were upon us. We decided to inflate our paddle boards and escape the heat with some water time and headed west to a well-known spot. The Oxbow Bend is a popular scenic overlook in the heart of the Teton mountain range. The name derives from the Snake River carving a large bend in the river as it flows south. People crowd the spot, trying to get their personal majestic photograph of the Teton Range. We looked at the water. No one. We inflated our paddle boards and set off to enjoy some peace and quiet on the water. With each stroke, our paddles broke the glassy surface of the Snake River. Views of Mount Morin appeared right in front of us. Lily spotted the Grand Teton summit sneaking up behind Signal Mountain. Look, pelicans, said Lily, pointing to a pod of pelicans floating on the water. Wait, is that an otter? asked Louise. Sure enough, we swung the paddle boards to observe an otter playing in the water. We floated and enjoyed the National Geographic show in front of us. The only thing we didn't see was any other people. The place was ours. With the temperatures on the rise, it was time to cool off. We paddled into a small, sandy beach area and dove into the cool and refreshing water. Finally, we made our way back to Cattleman's Bridge, our put-in spot, and called it an awesome day on the water in one of the nation's most visited national parks. Visiting, recreating, and adventuring in the Greater Grand Tetons Yellowstone area can easily be accomplished and enjoyed. Just don't be afraid to explore a dirt road or a hiking trail through the woods to see where it might lead. The goods abound. Yes, the Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks are definitely a must-do. Put them on your list, but be smart and resourceful by examining a map. You will find endless places to wander and adventure without the hordes of tourists. Remember, drive a little farther down a road or hike a little longer on a trail, and you'll be rewarded with peace and solitude in the shadows of grandness. Overland Garage. Does the lithium iron phosphate battery represent an equal jump in technology and durability? Words and photos by Jonathan Hansen. Are you effing kidding me? I thought to myself, sitting immobile in the driver's seat of my FJ40 on a remote beach in Mexico. Another dead diehard? 
It was the early 1990s, and I'd been going through diehard batteries at the rate of one every two years or so. Sure, they had prorated guarantee, but that did little good when the nearest Sears was 600 miles away. And this was way before I learned about dual battery systems. Fortunately, I was guiding a group of clients at the time and sheepishly begged a jump from one of them. When I got home, I did some exhaustive pre-Google research and discovered a new Miracle battery, at that time available only by special order from a hot rod shop in Tucson. The revolutionary Optima cost well over twice what the Die Hard had, but my first one lasted over six years and I never looked back. Absorbed glass mat, AGM batteries of course, would go on to dominate the market for those requiring superior performance and long life from an automotive battery. So the question begs, does the lithium iron phosphate battery represent an equal jump in technology and durability? It certainly represents an equal jump in price. Currently, top quality lithium automotive batteries list for over twice the price of a brand name AGM equivalent, around $800 and up. In terms of technology, however, lithium batteries represent more of a leap through hyperspace. AGM batteries obviously bested their standard lead-acid predecessors in durability, but they weighed the same or more. They had about the same energy density, and, like LA batteries, their voltage and thus power delivery dropped off in a more or less linear fashion. Considered by contrast, the lithium iron phosphate starting in deep cycle batteries I just installed in a 1993 HZJ75 troop carrier from anti-gravity batteries. Let's start with weight. An Optima Yellow Top AGM battery weighs 44 pounds. The anti-gravity lithium iron phosphate replacement weighs 18.2 pounds. The deep cycle AGM battery that was in our troop carrier weighs 51 pounds. Its replacement is 27.5 pounds. That's a 49.3 pound savings which almost exactly offsets the weight of our 50-liter National Luna fridge freezer. I consider that significant in an overland vehicle frequently close to its gross volume weight. Next, and in my opinion far more significant, consider the energy density and power delivery of the deep cycle battery, which is of critical importance to the majority of us who run dual battery systems incorporating a house battery to run all the accessories associated with the camping and auxiliary equipment in our vehicle. Fridge, lights, water pump, air compressor, 12-volt DC outlets, USB outlets, and inverter power. I'm quite sure no one reading this here would add a TV to that list, right? As soon as you apply a load to an AGM or standard lead-acid battery, the voltage begins to drop. Depending on the amperage requirements of the load, scant in the case of an LED interior lamp, heavy in the case of, say, an ARB twin compressor, the angle of the line of that drop will shallow or steep. Once the voltage drops below 11, perhaps 10.5, depending on the appliance, those appliances will start shutting themselves off, especially the fridge. At that point, the battery retains a good 50% of its theoretical energy, but it is unusable to a 12-volt device. It's wasted. By contrast, a lithium-iron phosphate battery's voltage, and thus its power delivery, remains nearly flat and above 12 volts until the battery is over 90% depleted. Thus, a 100 amp hour lithium iron phosphate battery contains far more deliverable energy than an equivalent 100 amp hour AGM battery. Additionally, while an AGM battery can withstand around 300 to 400 full discharge recharge cycles, a lithium battery can withstand around 2000. That alone is more than enough to amortize the cost difference. Finally, a lithium iron phosphate battery can also accept a charge at three to four times the rate of an AGM. 
No wait, not finally. Lithium iron phosphate batteries are also exceptionally voltage stable when stored. I received the first battery from anti-gravity a full three months before installing it. When I checked the voltage, it was 13.31. Back to the anti-gravity starting battery, we find another advantage over an AGM counterpart, a clever built-in jump start capability. If the internal battery management system, BMS, detects the voltage dropping below a critical level, if, for example, you leave the headlamps on, it will shut down with a reserve capacity sufficient to start the engine. All you do is hit the button right there on the battery or in the app available for your smartphone, which, incidentally, will also inform you of the internal temperature of each battery, the percentage charge remaining, the amperage coming in, and the amperage going out, even the number of discharge cycles the battery has experienced. The deep cycle battery also has an LED fuel gauge right on it that will give you a rough measure of the state of charge. So far this sounds like an open and shut case, right? But there's a caveat. The bete noir of lithium iron phosphate automotive batteries is temperature extremes, both high and low. Whether this is an issue for your buying decision depends largely on the climate in which you drive and camp. A lithium iron phosphate deep cycle battery will happily produce power, discharge, down to about negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 20 degrees Celsius. However, it will not accept a charge at temperatures below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees Celsius. So you can use the battery on a very cold night, but it might not recharge until the next morning when the day warms up. Or, of course, you start the engine and warm the engine compartment and interior. One can argue that we rarely, if ever, charge batteries in camp at night anyway, but it is something to consider. Some lithium iron phosphate battery manufacturers are producing models with built-in thermostats and heaters that draw a small amount of power from the battery itself to keep it at operating temperatures. And you can buy inexpensive aftermarket thermostats and heating pads that do the same thing. Keep firmly in mind that these parameters refer not to air temperature, but to the internal temperature of the battery which of course lags significantly behind the ambient temperature drop. Also, just using the battery warms it a bit. There is no danger of damage to the battery since the BMS will shut down charging and or discharging if the critical point is reached. In southern Arizona where I live, low temperature sensitivity is unlikely to be an issue, and my wife is highly unlikely to ever consent to camping where it would be. The other end of the scale, though, is a factor here. The listed upper limit for discharging the anti-gravity's deep cycle battery is 131 degrees Fahrenheit, 55 degrees Celsius, and for charging, 121 degrees Fahrenheit, 50 degrees Celsius. For this reason, most users install them in the living area of the vehicle or camper, where short of a Furnace Creek camp in July, you're extremely unlikely to have a problem. And again, these refer to the internal temperatures of the battery, not the air temperature. However, after consulting anti-gravity, I decided to experiment by mounting both our starting battery and the house battery in the existing dual battery bracket in the right rear of the troop carrier's engine compartment. A couple of things convinced me this was worth the trial. First, the battery tray is on the cold side of the 1HZ engine, opposite the exhaust manifold. Second, the tray itself is open at the base, which would allow fresh airflow from under the vehicle. Third, I had a machinist friend fabricate an aluminum shield for the engine side of the tray. Finally, I'll be insulating the batteries themselves with aerogel, an ultra-low density, nanoporous solid foam available in various thicknesses. I'll monitor the internal temperature of the deep cycle battery via the BMS through the Bluetooth connection to my iPhone app. 
These sure ain't my old diehards. Another unique aspect of lithium iron phosphate batteries is their charging profile, which differs from that of an AGM. They don't like to be constantly trickle charged as vehicle alternators are designed to do. Thus, the BMS and the anti-gravity starting battery manages its own charging needs, so it can be a direct drop-in replacement for an AGM. The anti-gravity deep cycle battery, on the other hand, wants a DC to DC charge controller that can take advantage of that much faster charge rate compared to an AGM deep cycle. So I contacted RedArc, an Australian company with extensive experience managing power needs in vehicles that spend a lot of time in the bush. Their BCDC 124OD charge controller, paired with an RK1260 relay kit, will properly and quickly charge the auxiliary battery from the vehicle's alternator as well as from the pair of 100 watt Renogy photovoltaic panels we have mounted to the roof of the Troopy. The RedArc BC-DC chargers can also be configured for AGM batteries and switched when needed to accommodate lithium iron phosphate or back again. After 35 years of testing equipment and writing comparison reviews, it takes a lot for a product to impress me, but I was sincerely impressed with the quality and level of detail in the RedArc kit. The electronics in the BC-DC charger are fully potted, sealed, and thus extremely resistant to environmental abuse. Aside from wire for extended leads from the PV panels, etc., the kit included virtually every bit I needed to complete the installation, right down to pre-cut links of heat shrinking tubing. Nice. The pair of hard mounts for the charge controller 60 amp tab fuses was so well engineered, I immediately called RedArc and ordered an identical 40 amp kit for the fuses on our Airby twin air compressor. Much nicer than the rubber capped inline originals with which the compressor came. I mounted the BCDC 124 OD charge controller solidly to the front of the battery tray, where the 8 gauge leads from it to the fuses and then batteries would have mere inches to run. Mounting the Red Arc in the original controller's location in the camper would have necessitated at least 6 gauge cable for the 14 foot run to the batteries to carry the amperage the lithium iron phosphate batteries are capable of accepting. The 1 8 inch thick aluminum heat shield provided a convenient and stout place to mount both pairs of fuse holders I just mentioned, as well as a small air B compressor dedicated to the rear locker, which formerly had demanded where the charge controller now resides. I took the opportunity to clean up the chaotic mess of battery wiring we inherited with the vehicle, replacing and organizing wires, replacing connectors and protecting them with heat shrink tubing, covering everything in split loom, and securing it all against vibration and abrasion. I used simple military-style terminals on the starting battery, inexpensive yet capable of accepting numerous connections if needed. On advice from my master Toyota mechanic friend Bill Lee, I ran the battery grounds to a single point on the body, which also connects to the engine ground. It's a small detail, but helps prevent any kind of poor grounding through the sheet metal and chassis. As I mentioned, this is an experience, so I plan to monitor and record temperatures of the deep cycle battery over the next few months then decide whether to leave it in the engine compartment or move it inside the vehicle. Stay tuned. Here's what's coming up in issue 42 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Max Siegel takes us on a paragliding adventure. Hakon Wiley shares a tale from his travels through the Yukon. Jonathan Hansen provides a detailed history of the Camel Trophy. And Seth Jansen talks candidly about his addiction to alcohol and how connecting with the outdoors has helped him renew his sense of self. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website regularly at www.outdoorx4.com for new tips, 
reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.